All right, hey, online folks, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to uh, the book of Isaiah. Go kind of the middle of your Bible, Psalms and Proverbs. Take a right, and a few books later, you will see uh, the book of Isaiah. Uh, last week, we looked at one of probably the most obscure Christmas passage or a passage about the coming advent, the first advent of Jesus. And this one, we're going to actually look at one that is a little bit more familiar to, uh, to many of you. Maybe it's the first time some of you have looked at it, but let me give you a special shout out to Chris from New Jersey. All right, Chris, thank you very much uh, for joining us this morning. Uh, Cynthia from Brevard, and then uh, make sure Cynthia, uh, you know about the Brevard campus will actually be opening, but more church Brevard campus will be open here at the end of January, 1st of February, and uh, please be looking for that. And then Catherine from just down the road in Morganton, North Carolina, thank you for uh, joining us today. Again, go ahead. Isaiah chapter 9 is where we're going uh, to be, and uh, we're going to look at a a group of people. We're going to look at a message to a group of people 700 years before the incarnation, before Jesus became a man and dwelt among us. But it was to a people that desperately needed to hear a word from God. They needed to understand, God, what do you want me to do in our particular situation? And it was a, it was a dire situation, one of a, a national emergency, uh, a financial catastrophe. All that stuff was going on to the people we're going to read about. But looking at 2020, the parallels are just hard to miss. I mean, in 2020, uh, tons of financial issues, financial crisis for so many, many people, uh, health issues that we never dreamed would actually uh, play a part of our lives, have played a huge part of our life. The national stress, all of that has gone on in 2020. And what he told people uh, 700 years before Jesus was born, and then tells us now 2,000 years after Jesus was born, that the answers that you're looking for, the guidance that you're looking for is actually you're going to be back in some of the names that God said that Jesus would fulfill and Jesus would be called. So um, before we jump in there, I would say this, there's a bunch of rules and especially if you are, you know, maybe you're married and you're not parents yet, but just kind of a word to the wise, there's a ton of rules that nobody really tells you about naming your child, right? They just, I don't know where they are. They need to be written down somewhere, but nobody tells you about them. For example, if uh, your spouse ever dated someone with a certain name, I mean, that name is off limits, all right? If you or your spouse really did not like somebody in high school, let's say, or even in college, you're like, man, that person was my arch nemesis. You know, that name is off the table. But a particular attention, you gotta make sure that the first and the last name uh, go well together because you can make some mistakes. I think I've told uh, some of you this before, but we've got two boys uh, named Tyler and Connor. And uh, they weren't family names. There was no Tyler in, our, in the Frank family. There was no Connor in the Frank family. We just like the names. And we like the name at the fact that they were double syllables, two syllables with a single syllable last name. But for probably seven months, maybe two months before uh, Connor was born. So for seven months, I mean, look, back at a check register and I see checks written and in the little memo, it says this. It doesn't say Connor Garrett. It says Brennan Garrett because that was the name we had for Connor initially. Again, month after month, Brennan Garrett, Brennan Garrett. And we did make the mistake of telling relatives, what what are you going to call the baby? And we made the mistake of telling them. All right. And we found out people have opinions. And when we said Brennan Garrett, one uncle, some crazy uncle who shall not be named today, uh, said, Brennan Garrett, Brennan Garrett. Oh, that's awesome. That sounds a lot like Grennan Barrett. And we're like, I mean, if crazy uncle can figure that out, then sure. I mean, 
first day in kindergarten, that is going to be his nickname. So we changed Brennan Garrett to a Connor Garrett. And there's some other ones, all right? I just looked these up. There's some that I obviously cannot say uh, in uh, this company, but I would say is here's ones and these are true. All right, you might not think they're true, but this, this one, I mean, that, you, you gotta almost verbalize it out. That's, I'm a hog, I'm a hog. Now you're like, that can't be true. Actually, it is true. She was the first lady of Texas. She was a big philanthropist, gave away a lot of money. I had heard rumor that she had a sister named Yura, and I could not find any validation for that to be true. But Ima is true. Here's one, uh, you just kind of stands alone. Anita, Anita Mann, Anita Mann. Just leave it at that. And here's one that, this is a lady named Helen, and she married a guy with the last name of Back, and so her name ended up being Helen Back, and apparently she said at least the first 10 years of marriage were exactly that. So point being is names matter. Names matter a lot, all right? So God chose certain names that his son would be called, and he writes to this group of people, and I'm gonna read a little bit of context, and I'm gonna read the verse that we're gonna settle in on, and we're just gonna settle in on one part of that verse. But Isaiah uh, chapter nine, verse one, two, and then we're gonna skip up to verse six. It says this, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. So we're gonna come back. This was a difficult time uh, during the life of this person in this country. It says, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, which by the way, the New Testament writer in the gospel of Matthew, he quotes this part, talking about the times in which Jesus was born into, as well as this prophecy that was fulfilled in Jesus. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. And then verse six, and the one is highlighted is one we're gonna spend some time on today. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Can I get a witness? And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so today the question on the floor is, how do I get the wonderful counselor to counsel me? How do I hear from God? If God is such an awesome, wonderful counselor, if Jesus says, you know what, I will actually speak into your life and I will give you guidance, how do I get the counselor to counsel? Because there's a bunch of questions out there, everything from, you know, should I take a certain job? Should I marry a certain person? Should I focus in on a particular ministry? Uh, much less just guidance given during a difficult season. Those are all awesome questions. I wanna do what God wants me to do, but how do I know what God wants me to do? So let me give you a little bit of the context of this. You don't just rip open your Bible and then just, you, you've gotta understand the context. So the context in Isaiah six is in a nutshell, basically this. It's about 730 BC. And as you saw in the text, it was spoken to a people who, quote, walked in darkness. Darkness in this context, the word is a kind of a combination between ignorance, uh, arrogance, and peril. All right, so they're kind of ignoring some stuff. They're a little bit arrogant, but they're also very, very panicked at this point. And the main character in the story is a guy named King Ahaz. King Ahaz, he was king of Judah, became king of Judah at the age of 20. And shortly after that, he was panicking because the Assyrian army is preparing to try to take over Jerusalem, 
capture him and, and just take over the whole place. And so he's panicking, figuring out, how can I do this? The Assyrian army would outnumber them. They would be able to take it. What can I do? What can I do to prevent this? Now, he started to look for some alternatives, and one of the main alternatives that was presented to him was to have a coalition between him and a couple of the other kings. They actually say, hey, get a coalition with us, make an alliance with us, and we'll fight with you against the Assyrians. Now, the point of this is, is that God then tells Ahaz, listen, trust me, don't trust the alliance. Trust me. Just trust me and I will get you out of this mess. Trust me, don't trust them. And he said, I know that could be even difficult, so what I'm gonna do to help you trust me is I'm gonna give you a sign. I'm gonna give you a signpost that you cannot miss. And that's actually what starts in chapter seven when it says, it says a sign will be given to you. It will be a virgin will conceive a son and you will call him Emmanuel. Now put your kind of your... Uh, theological hat on for about uh, 90 seconds. There is to that one prophecy in Isaiah 7, 14 that says, you know what? The virgin will bear a child and you will name him Emmanuel. There is a partial fulfillment of that in Isaiah's day. If you look in chapter eight, there is a child, even a special child that is born. And so you see a partial fulfillment in Isaiah's day but it's obvious that's not the complete fulfillment of what he's referring to because he says one day there will be a child much, much greater than him. And he says he will be called a mighty God, wonderful counselor, everlasting father, prince of peace. Now listen, I don't care how much you think your kid is awesome, no parent is gonna call their normal child that. So it's obviously something way down the road. Now, one last thing is sometimes some of the prophecies in the Bible are actually like that. There's a partial fulfillment in the immediate context, but then the ultimate fulfillment is down the road a little bit. Uh, we live here, in, if you're watching from Western North Carolina, or even if you're not, we live in Western North Carolina and some of these like awesome mountains are called the Smoky Mountains. And when you look out and you see these wonderful ridge lines and you see these wonderful peaks, sometimes they almost overlap on each other like they're just right next to each other. But you try hiking them, you try going out there to them, you will oftentimes see that even though they look like they were on top of each other, there's actually a lot of distance in between one peak to the next peak. That's the way a lot of prophecy is in the Bible. That's the way this prophecy is. You know what? There is a partial fulfillment, but then there is some distance before you actually reach the ultimate fulfillment. So I say all of that to say this. I am completely confident you do not have an Assyrian army in your front yard ready to overthrow your home. But as you approach this Christmas, maybe it's other stuff. Maybe it's your job. It's not just shaky. Some of you have lost your job company you work with for 10 years and because of different things and COVID and all that stuff, they're like, you know what, you're furloughed or you're permanently furloughed or you're partially furloughed or whatever that is in your job is shaky. For others of you, your marriage is failing. You just, it, it is, you know it, your spouse knows it, it's failing. Others of you, your health is fading. You know, whether you have COVID or whether you've got something else, you're like, you know what, is, is, this, is this the end? Others of you are like, you know, I just don't know where to go. I don't know where to turn, I don't know what to do. And the others of you are like, you know what? It's actually a pretty good season for me right now. I mean, the, the bank account is good. The kids are behaving. The marriage is somewhat stable. And yet you wake up consistently thinking, you know what? I've got every reason to be happy. But as I lie in bed here thinking about it, if I'm honest, I mean, I'm just flat out depressed. 
There's got to be some more purpose for me. There's got to be something beyond the fact that I have a little house in the suburbs and everything seems to be smooth. And yet I still wake up going, man, there's got to be more than this. So what, what do I do with that? Well, the text says that he is a wonderful counselor. So before we answer the question, how do I get the counselor to counsel me? Uh, let's just pick apart those two words. The first one is wonderful. It's actually a hard word to translate. Wonderful means literally too good for words. It's like glorious, magnificent, amazing. It's like this is, he is too good to be true. And then counselor means just simply one who guides, one who gives uh, advice, one who counsels. In other words, uh, there is someone that you bring your worst problems to and he shows you the best way out with perfect counsel all the time, on time, every time. And that's in and of itself amazing because all of us have gotten some bad counsel. I mean, there's nobody alive that has lived more than a few years that has not gotten some bad counsel. You know what? You ought to just leave her and go trade her in for a newer model. You can buy that stuff. I mean, just buy it. You can pay for it. You can pay for it down the road. Sure, take her out on another date. I know she's crazy, but she's pretty too. All those, that bad, bad, bad advice. And so the question is, how do I get the counselor to counsel me? So let me give you a couple of things that you can see reinforced in the text that you and I can say, okay, I've got, have, I do, have I done this? Am I doing this right now? And so get that one thing out there and like, this is what I need to have. I've got to have some guidance from the Lord today. First one would be this, pretty obvious, but just admit your problem to him. Just admit your problem. Virtually every counselor will say this, whether it be Christian or secular, almost every counselor will say, you know what, until, you be, until you're honest about your issue, until you're honest about your situation, until you admit that, you know what, I have a problem, until you get to that point, it is so hard to make any forward progress at all. And so this morning, whether you are sitting on, in your, you know, all alone and, and you know, in your apartment with no one else around you, or whether you've got a bunch of people around you, whether you're in a small group at a watch party, whatever that is, just ask yourself the question or just admit whatever God has brought up, just be honest. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And what's the issue? I have money problems. I have addiction issues. I'm a bad spouse. I have a prodigal that is breaking my heart and tearing the family unit down, whatever that is, just name what that is. The good news is, the great news is, is that every miracle that you see performed in the Bible first began as a problem. I mean, looking at it that way, there are, there are no miracles unless before the miracle, there's an issue, there's a problem. And so you can just go down through all the miracles. Just take the miracles that Jesus did. For example, when he feeds the 5,000, famous miracle. What precipitated 5,000 people being fed? A bunch of hungry people out in the middle of nowhere with no supermarket around and they're hungry and they're isolated and there's an emergency on hand. You look at the people Jesus healed, whether it be from blindness or lameness or whatever, what precipitated that? Well, before they could get healed, they had to be sick. Before he could see, he had to be blind. Before he could walk, he had to be lame. And so when you look at that, every single miracle that Jesus ever did began with a problem. Now, let's be real. Uh, we have a tendency to not want to be honest with our problems. And there's a variety of reasons why. I mean, some of it's just pure shame. And maybe it's the deep thought, you know, if I get really honest about my issues, uh, other people will walk away. Or maybe even deep down you're thinking, you know what, if I'm really honest about this, God will walk away from me. 
And one of the best things you can understand, especially when it comes to putting all those issues through the lens and the metric of the gospel is this, and he already knows. He already knows. I mean, we talk about what the gospel informs us is we are, we are perfectly known. We are known more than we could ever even believe, but we're loved more than we can ever imagine. Let me just take an easy example, like John chapter four, sort of a, one of the classic scenes in the Bible of the woman at the well. And remember how Jesus meets her there and they have this discussion about worship for a little while. And she's really not wanting him to kind of probe because she's messed up. I mean, she's got a messed up life, messed up relationships, shame like you wouldn't believe. And she does not want him as a rabbi to see that. She's already in some ways been ostracized by the people of the town. Hence the reason she has to go to the well in the middle of the day. And so she keeps trying to hide these things because she's thinking, you know what? Surely he will walk away from me if he finds out all this stuff about me. And so finally, what Jesus says is, listen, I already know you've had five husbands. I know you've had five husbands. I also know that you're committing adultery, the guy that you're living with now. And I knew that when I started this conversation. When we started this conversation, I knew that and I didn't go away. And so that's one of the things we drill down over and over and over. He already knows, he already knows. A phrase that we use often at our church is this, to be loved but not known is just sentimentality. It's a Hallmark card. It's a Christmas card. You know what? Love you, but they don't know you. But if they know you and don't love you, man, that is brutality. You know what? The door cracked open. I looked inside. I saw your heart. I didn't like what it was. And so I walked away. That is brutal. What the gospel assures us of is that, you know what? We are broken. God knew we were broken. He looked and he said, you know, you are worse than you could possibly believe. And yet I still love you. As a matter of fact, great verse to memorize, Romans chapter five, verse eight, it says this, but God demonstrated his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, while we had broken his heart, while we had broken his law, while we had done that, it says God demonstrates his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so one of the first things you got to do is I just got to admit I got a problem. Again, whether it be guilt or rejection or regret or addiction or family dysfunction or concern about kids or money or marriage or whatever. If you've got a problem today, the good news is you're a candidate for a miracle. But you got to be, you got to admit, I got a problem. I have, I have a problem. All right. Second thing I want you to do is this, is just ask for his counsel. I mean, I know this seems kind of crazy, but it's like so, so simple, but you just ask, ask for some counsel. I mean, God tells Ahaz, the king here, I want to give you a sign for comfort. I want to give you a sign so you can trust me and, and understand I will guide you. And amazingly, what Ahaz does is I don't show me a sign. He actually doesn't want a sign. It's like, don't show me a sign. And he kind of acts really super spiritual. Like, I don't want to put the Lord to the test, but you know what? God gives him one anyway. He gives him one anyway. I think Ahaz thinks, you know what? If God gives me a sign, then I'm in, I have to obey. Here's another great verse you need to kind of jot down. James Chapter one, verse five, James is the half brother of Jesus. But James chapter one, verse five is one of those great, great verses. It says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, lacks wisdom, all that means is I don't know what to do. 
I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get this marriage off dead center. I don't know how to get that prodigal to return. I don't know how to get these money issues fixed. I don't know how to get this hole in my soul filled. I don't have any of that at all. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. One of the most overlooked but coolest things of that one verse is he says, and I will give it to him without reproach. Now, why is that so awesome? Because oftentimes if we're honest about our problem, the problem we're in is because we didn't seek his guidance in the first place. When we look back at some of our biggest regrets, I would say if we're on 100% of those big regrets is because we either didn't ask for God's guidance or we got God's guidance and we just blew right through the stop sign and did it anyway. And now we've got the shrapnel that we're trying to deal with now, the consequences that are oftentimes built into ignoring God's counsel. But he says, you know what? I will give it without reproach. So what does that mean? What that means is even if you've gotten yourself into the mess that you are in because you didn't seek his guidance, what he says is, especially if you're a son or a daughter of almighty God through repentance and faith in Jesus, he says, you, you come and you ask, and I'm not going to be up in heaven going, now you want to talk, huh? What about two months ago? You didn't want my opinion then. That's not God. All right, that might be a parent, that might even be a grandparent, but that's not God. He says, I will give you the wisdom you need without reproach. Why is that? Because Jesus took your condemnation on himself on the cross, so now there's no condemnation left for us. So when we go, we go in front of a father who looks at us again, and he sees what Jesus did on the cross, and we're in Jesus, and so he looks at us and says, you know what, ask away. Ask away, ask for wisdom. Now. Part of that is understanding that about 95%, 95% of the will of God is clearly in the word of God. About 95% of stuff that we're like, I wonder what God would have me to do. It's already right here. Now it doesn't say, hey, here's what college you should do or here's the name of your spouse or whatever, but about 95% of it is right here. We obey his commands, we adopt his values, he changes us into the people that he wants us to be. All right, it's like the fifth century saint, a guy named Augustine or Augustine, depending on how you want to pronounce it. He says, love God and just do what you want. Why? Because he says, if you and I are loving God and seeking God and, and listening to God, then he says, if, if my heart is toward God, then you know what? Just do what you want. Why? Because God's changing you into the person that's going to make the decisions that would glorify him and be for the good of others. But for clarity, there's a couple of different decisions, kind of types of decisions, if you will, Okay. Let's just take two. There's probably three or four, but there's two general ones, and I'll try to put it in that category. Uh, number one would be just, let's just call them right and wrong. Right and wrong decisions. Those are things that are clearly already revealed in the Bible. And so there's some things that, you know what, God says, this is what you do. This is what you never do. All right, these are like super clear, you know, this is, this is my will for you. I mean, for example, it's never God's will for you to, let's say, marry an unbeliever. It's never God's will for you to cheat your customers. It's uh, never God's will for you, to you, for you and I to use our money selfishly. It's, it's never God's will for you to, like, sleep with a coworker unless your business is with your spouse. It's, it's not it. You don't, have to, you don't have to pray about it. You don't have to go, hey, somebody pray for me so I would know whether I should do that. He's already told us that. But you're saying, what about the stuff that's not clear? Well, that's kind of a second category. The second category we can just call areas of wisdom, areas of wisdom. And these are not really commandments, but at the same time, God does provide clarity. The clarity is usually answered with the question, is this the best choice? Is this the wisest course of action 
that I can take right now, knowing all that God has allowed me to know, is this the wisest course of action? Proverbs says, you know, there's kind of two different ways. Uh, There's the way of foolishness, and he says there's the way of wisdom. Now, again, to be true confessions in church today, and that is that we've all done dumb stuff. I mean, we've all been idiots at times, correct? We've all accepted invitations we shouldn't have accepted. We've all invested in relationships we should not have invested in. We've all done those things and made some bad, bad decisions. Relationships we should have stayed out of, all that kind of stuff. We've made some bad decisions. Sometimes those bad decisions, sometimes they embarrass us and sometimes they scar us. But either way, these are areas of wisdom. What's the best choice of action that I should take? Proverbs, think about Proverbs like this. Think about wisdom in the Bible, these areas that, because there's nowhere that's like, okay, you go to this college and he names the college, but there's tons of principles that will interact. And so a lot of times areas of wisdom are sort of like when you look at the weather forecast and it's 90% chance of rain today, 90% chance of heavy rain. Now, when you and I see that forecast, we will then, if we're wise, we will take the necessary course corrections needed. So if you were about to walk out of your house with no umbrella, no raincoat at all, and you see that forecast, if you're wise, if you're smart, you will then go back and get an umbrella and get a raincoat. Why? Because chances are it's going to rain on you. Now, is there a chance that it doesn't rain? There's a chance. There's a 10% chance. But only a fool would say, you know what? Forget that. It's going to roll the dice and I'm going to, I don't think it's going to rain today. Can you do that? Yes, you can do that. The Bible says you and I would be foolish when we do that. And again, we've all been fools before. What we want to do is be less and less foolish as we grow in the Lord. That's what we want to do. And so you're like, uh, there's tons of stuff in here. Everything about the friends you and I have, the way we spend our money, uh, the way we interact with our spouse, the way that we deal with clients, all of that stuff is in the Bible. And um, again, when we ignore it, it's kind of like the whole thing, you know, play silly games, get silly prizes. That's what happens when we go the way of the fool. But here's a great verse that, uh, let me give you one more verse that's great to kind of put in your, in your bank. One of, the, one of the ones you ought to memorize pretty soon. It says this, Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a, and listen to the picture. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So one of the things that's sometimes helpful for us is to understand most of the time God's will is less like a door and more like a pathway. We tend to think it's always like a door. And sometimes it is, especially in those ones that are clearly right and wrong. Don't go through that door. If you go through that door, bad things happen or don't go through that door and bad things will happen that you didn't go through. So all that, all that being said, sometimes it's a door. Most of the time, it's more like a path. All right. It's more like, you know what? I'm going down this path. And as I walk with the Lord, he leads me and guides me. And if I get over to the side, there might be a guardrail that kind of bumps me back over. But listen to me. He wants you to know what he wants you to do. God's will is not some chasing some carrot out there that you will never actually get. I mean, what parent, what parent would say, son, I got something awesome for you to do. Got awesome, this is awesome what I want you to do. He's like, oh, tell me, tell me, dad, tell me, dad. Well, I'm not gonna tell you, just gotta figure it out. I mean, no parent does that. Any good parent wants to say, you know what? Here's what I want you to do, and this is gonna be awesome, and you're gonna be blessed because of this. And so understand, he wants you to, 
He wants you to do that and he will guide you. I'll give you an analogy that's kind of discouraging and not discouraging at the same time or not encouraging at the same time. And that is 200 times in the Bible, God calls you and I sheep. Now, I know when we think sheep, we think cut a little a little Hallmark sheep and it's awesome. And, there, and there's a part of that, but it's really not about how awesome the sheep is because sheep are idiots. I mean, I'm not a sheep guy. I don't know sheep, but I can read about sheep and people who know sheep, you know what they say? They say sheep are idiots, right? They're dumb. They are. I mean, all they're doing honestly is just looking at the rear end in front of them and following that rear end. That's all they do. And they will go off a cliff. They will go into some river and get and swept away and, and drown. The only way the sheep is going to make it is based on the compassion and the competency of the shepherd, of the shepherd. And so that's where our confidence is. Your shepherd wants to lead you and guide you. And if you want to go that way, he will do so. I'll give you one example. It's been a while, so I think it's safe now. I told you a while back, uh, got my motorcycle license and you got to take a, uh, you've got to take, uh, you got to take a written test for that. You got to take a written test. Then you got to do your motorcycle. Then you got to do your, your drive test, but your written test. And the written test is not easy. It's not easy. I mean, I told you to my embarrassment, I was like, I think you got to get 20 out of 25. And I'm like, this is cake. This is easy greasy. I mean, it's got to be easy. It's a motorcycle test. I mean, I got a doctorate. Surely I can pass a motorcycle test. And I failed. All right. I got down to the last question. I had missed four, can't miss five. Came to that last down. I even had it down to B or C. Picked the wrong one. Shame. So I slink out of the Department of Motor Vehicles, and I come back, like, you can come back tomorrow. And the bad thing is, the bad thing is, is when I walked in the first time, because we live in kind of a small town. And so I don't, I don't know if she went to our church or not, but she came in and I was getting my, you know, the paper and stuff. And she's like, good luck, pastor. And I was like, okay, I know it. And I didn't study that much. Well, when I left, I was like, I handed her in my failing grade and she's like, come back tomorrow. You come to the front of the line and uh, we'll get you set up, pastor. I was like, oh. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't want you to know me. So I came back on time. I studied for this deal. And man, I blitzed that thing. I, got, I think I missed one. I was like 24 out of 25, no problem. And so I took that paper and I went up there with some degree of, you know, like this thing was easy. And I promise you, I put that down there and this other lady looked and said, okay, now are you ready for this? I think she called it the sign test. I didn't know there was a sign test. Signs like the signs you're supposed to do. But I'm like, well, how hard can it be? I mean, I've been driving for decades. How hard can this be? And the first line was pretty easy. Like, you know, railroad tracks, pretty easy. All right, stop, stop sign, pretty easy. And you can only miss, I can't remember, you can miss just a couple of these. And I'll tell you right now, I'll get down to like the last one. This time on the sign test that I had not studied for, and I'm looking at it and I do not know it. I'm, I don't know it. And the lady, bless her heart, thank the Lord, she starts kind of trying to prompt me a little bit. You know, looks like a schoolhouse, people going around, it's where they learn. It's like school crossing, school bus. And so I got it. My point is this, there's a lady who didn't hardly know me at all. She wanted me to get to the destination that I wanted to get to. Guess what? You've got a father in heaven who says, you know what? If you want to get there, I will give you all the direction that you need to get there. And he says 95% of it, or I'm saying 95% of it is right here. It's a lamp unto my path. So what do you do? You're like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do about this big, what do you know now to do? Because right now he said, take this one step. Have you taken that one step? 
You're like, well, I'm on trying to get over there. But you don't get over there until you take the one step that God's already told you to take, which kind of leads us to what we're talking about, and that is this. You got to follow his instructions. Like, yeah, but I'm waiting for him to tell me who that, who that is, what that is. What does that look like? What I'm trying to tell you is, what is he telling you to do right now? What's he trying to tell you to do right now? Because sadly, Ahaz ignores the advice of the Lord. He ignores and rejects God's counsel. He ends up actually making an alliance, not with those other kings, but he makes an alliance with Assyria, thinking that will save his skin, and that doesn't help either. And Assyria ends up you know, trying to capture him. Ahaz ends up turning all these idols and all these false gods. Eventually, it led to Israel being uh, led into exile. Bad, bad stuff. Why? Because our sin has collateral damage, right? When we ignore God and we're like, hey, forget God, and we do our own thing. It's not just us who suffer oftentimes. It's the people around us and our loved ones who suffer. And so for Ahaz, it, it hurt the entire nation. But here's the question. What does God ask you to do specifically? I mean, you know it. And it could be big. It could be a big deal. Or it could be a small deal. It could be something you think is, well, that's obviously connected to my prayer and to my need for counsel. But sometimes it's not immediately obvious that this is connected to that at all. You're like, well, what does that have to do with this? What do finances have to do with my marriage? What does my marriage have to do with my ministry? What does my ministry have to do with my money? And you don't see those connections. But with God, I mean, everything is connected. Think about it this way. Think about the stuff Jesus asked people to do that, at least on the surface, didn't make a lot of sense. I mean, stuff like, why would you ask him, why would you ask them to do, why would you ask him to do that? I'm going to give you, there's, I mean, you could, tons of examples. John chapter 9, blind man. Jesus spits in the mud, makes little mud cakes, puts them on his eyes. And what does he ask this guy to do? He asks the guy to go to a specific pool of water in a different part of town to wash his eyes. Now, why did he do that? All he could have done is like, boom, you can see. But he says, I want you to get up and I want you to go and I want you to wash in a specific pool across town. Again, why not just snap his fingers and heal him right there? Um, Naaman in the Old Testament, look at uh, like 2 Kings 5, there's a general named Naaman who had leprosy. And the prophet of God says, you, God tells him, you go and wash in the Jordan River seven times. What? Why? Why do I have to go? It's not the water that's going to cleanse me anyway. And you imagine if he'd have gone there and let's say jumped in the river and said, see, I told you this was a stupid thing to do. Or what if he'd have like dunked himself three times and said, this is foolishness. What are people, I'm a, I'm a general for Pete's sake. I look like a fool in here. But he continued to do it a fourth time, a fifth time, a sixth time, and a seventh time. God performed a miracle. And so when you look down there, I mean, I'll give you one more. Remember the uh, scene in John chapter five, where the guy's been trying to get to the pool and he finally, Jesus comes along and he asks him actually a pretty strange question. He says, do you want to be healed? Well, of course I want to be healed. But then when he actually heals him, he says, take up your mat that he'd been laying on for decades, take up your mat and walk. So why is he asking these people to do something that does not seem to be connected? Well, why does he ask you and I to do some things sometime that don't seem to be connected? You're discouraged, you're disheartened. And he says, I want you to extend forgiveness and to whoever that is that injured you. Forgive them. 
Well, who's gonna avenge me? I want you, I'll, I'll avenge you, you forgive them. He says, I want you to end a relationship. Yeah, God, but I'm 32 years old and I'm single and I don't wanna grow up to be single the rest of my life. I want you to end this relationship. I've got something better for you. I want you to be generous toward an, a certain ministry. I want you to be baptized. You're like, what does baptism have to do with my prodigal? Other times, like, I want you to get in a small group so it can be big things or small things. But again, with God, what he's doing is he's looking for not partial obedience. He's looking at, first of all, do you trust me? Just like he was trying to get Ahaz. Listen, trust me. Trust me and I'll take you out of this. Trust me and I'll take you through this. But it does have an impact on other stuff. There's some mathematician came up with this butterfly effect whole thing. The butterfly effect is basically some butterfly flaps his wings over here in just the right place and just the right time and just the right volume, then, you know, hundreds of miles away, it impacts having a hurricane. Listen, I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know with God, all this is very much connected. It shows faith. It shows humility. And so here's the bottom line. The bottom line is, is your yes on the table? Is your yes on the table in order for the wonderful counselor to counsel you? You got to put your yes on the table before he asks you a question. All right. That's very hard because that doesn't work in any other area. Doesn't work when you do a contract with somebody. Here, sign this contract. Well, what does the contract say? Well, I'm not going to tell you. You'd never sign that contract. You'd never give somebody a blank check and say, hey, you fill in the amount. That is what God asks for us. That's called, that's called the Lordship of Christ. And if you're a Christ follower, you've done that at least one time. At least one time you said, you know what? I'm not the boss of me. You're the boss of me. That what you did on that cross somehow, some way counted for me and I surrender my life to you, all right? You've done that one time. If you haven't done that, that's the way you actually become a follower of Jesus, all right? I surrender my life to the Lordship of Christ. Save me, make me the person you want me to be. But that's actually something we wanna do almost every single day. So I jotted down a little prayer that'll hopefully be helpful. And here's what it is. And we'll put it out on social media later. But here's a prayer, you can probably just, you know, print it out, put it on your mirror, put it in your console. This would be great when you can put this into effect virtually every day. It says, Heavenly Father, thank you for being a wonderful counselor. And here's the first part, I need your help and guidance. Just admit you got a problem. God, I can't do it. I can't, you can. I need your help, I need your guidance. Please show me what to do. And again, this, this is not about you bowing up thinking, I can do it. It's by the spirit of God. If you look in the New Testament, he calls the counselor. John 16 is the person of the Holy Spirit. Please show me what to do. And by your spirit, I will follow your instructions. And then here's the part you want to put on there. It's like my yes, my yes is already on the table. All right. My yes is on the table. Now you ask the question. All right, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for being a good, good God. We never have to doubt your goodness. You showed it to us 2,000 years ago and took the most awful thing man could ever do and you turned it out for our good. And that is amazing. And we're grateful. And we wanna pray during this Advent time, during this time when we are looking forward to celebrating the first Advent, the first arrival of Jesus. Help this to be the most spiritually prosperous time that we've ever, ever had. Help this to be the time where we put the stake in the ground that, you know what, I will live for the glory of God and I will live for the good of other people. That will be my life mission. That's what I'll do for the glory of Jesus' name. And we pray it in his name. Amen.